It's a great honor uh, to be um, uh, speaking to this group here today. Economic education has been a very important part of my career, obviously. Um, but um, even in my uh, current position, I consider economic education part of my job description. And it's something I'm, I'm very much aware of and uh, thoughtful about every time I use my minor little pulpit uh, to address any public audience. Um, I, I realize we're a little behind schedule because of the delay of one of our speakers. I promise to stop if a class bell rings. <laughs> My topic today is financial education in the wake of the crisis. Uh, the past year has been a tumultuous one uh, for our nation's financial system, and for our nation's economy, and for a huge number of the citizens of our country. Financial transactions entered into by those citizens, and the financial market securities derived from those transactions were at the heart of the turmoil we've been seeing in financial markets over the last year or two. With the economy and financial markets apparently on uh, a path to recovery, now it strikes me as an excellent time to, to pause and reflect on the meaning of this whole episode for financial education. In particular, what lessons should all of us as educators take away to help people make more informed financial choices, not only today but throughout their lifetimes? Now, I, I won't pretend to prescribe um, specific curricula changes or particular pedagogical approaches. Uh, I'd just like to share some general thoughts on what I think would be useful direction to take about um, as we learn more about the causes of this financial crisis and about the decisions that were made by households uh, during the period leading up to the crisis. And as always, I have to say, you're familiar with this with other, from other Federal Reserve speakers, um, the views I express are my own and don't necessarily represent views of the entire Federal Reserve System. Before discussing uh, potentially new directions for financial education, I'd like to pose a fundamental question. Why do we need financial education at all? And the, the answer might seem obvious to this crowd and our speakers, the speakers that preceded me extolled on this, but I don't think it's necessarily obvious just why uh, it's so necessary. And I think the answers will help us frame um, a broader discussion of this issue. For many purposes, economists uh, find it useful to start out by assuming that people are rational and that they will acquire the information that they find necessary to make the decisions uh, that will benefit them and the, their families. And there's certainly plenty of financial information and advice out there. Anyone who's watched cable TV late at night knows that. The problem is that not all the information is necessarily helpful, and especially given the variety of situations different situations that people find themselves in. Moreover, many information providers are far from disinterested in the information they communicate. And as a result, it can be difficult for individuals to distinguish between good information and bad information. Financial education can help consumers make well-considered judgments about the financial information they hear or read. In addition, the nature of many financial instruments is fundamentally different uh, from that of many durable goods. For instance, you don't need to understand thermodynamics 
to purchase a suitable refrigerator, for example. But you do need to know a fair amount about the terms of a mortgage contract and what that will mean for your overall financial well-being in various circumstances in the future. And you need to do that in order to make a sound decision about a mortgage. And finally, while a, a refrigerator is an expensive item, it's unlikely that the purchase is going to put you in financial peril. Uh, but obviously, uh, some financial products can do that, um, and they can have significant and long-lasting effects as a result. So consumers need to pay careful attention to those decisions uh, that involve those long-run consequences, and they need to, to seek out the, the requisite information to make informed choices. And this is a point I'll return to later. So as you know, there's a relatively widespread belief that a lack of regulation was to blame for the financial crisis, especially in mortgage lending. Proponents of this view commonly argue that consumers would uh, be made better off if there were tighter constraints on the set of financial products that they had to choose from. Now, to be sure, there were unscrupulous mortgage lenders out there who did not act in the best interests of the borrowers or the investors, for that matter, that they were supposed to serve. But it is also the case that financial innovation, including innovation in, mortgage, in the mortgage industry, has benefited consumers. It's allowed people, many people, to obtain credit who unable to qualify for credit and that allowed them the opportunity uh, to, to, to that allowed them an expanded range of financial options that they could use to rearrange the pattern of their spending over time in a way that suited them better but many observers um, believe that some of the financial choices that um, people made uh, leading up to this crisis made little sense. Consider, for instance, um, and this is an example from outside of mortgage finance, but it's a common one, a person with little savings who takes out a high interest loan in order to fund uh, car repairs. This will be a costly transaction for them, one that might appear misguided at first blush, but it may be money well spent if the car is necessary to get to work, and especially if uh, the job provides health insurance that's, that's a vital, vital component uh, for them. Someone with greater wealth may easily have been able to fund the repairs out of savings. That's clearly a more desirable option if you have that option available to you, but that's not one that's a, uh, an option that's available to all consumers. So yeah, the point here is that it's difficult to judge the merits of an individual's financial decision without knowing the circumstances that household's facing. Still, I think it's true, I, I firmly believe that people do make bad decisions at times. And I think a lack of information is often the root cause, and I think we need to take that on board. Sometimes this information that people have in financial settings is what economists call asymmetric. Uh, that is, one party to the transaction has significantly more, better information than another party to the transaction. And with financial products, this is particularly true. The provider often has more understanding about, more information about, the specific provisions of the financial contract that they're considering. And in that case, they may have an incentive to distort or obscure features of the contract and explaining it to the customer. This can place the consumer in a vulnerable position, and that may result in choices that turn out quite poorly for them. So how do we help with such information asymmetries? And I think they're endemic in the financial system at the retail level. 
suggest that the answer, and this is sort of uh, a tautology to some extent, I th suggest though the answer is a balanced contribution, emphasize the word balanced, of sensible regulation and financial education. Now on the regulation side, I think disclosure is the obvious place to start. As I noted above, some financial products can be quite complex and difficult to understand, even for relatively savvy consumers. Making the terms of a contract, for instance, clear and explicit, I think is likely to improve the ability of many consumers to make informed decisions about the contract and particularly about evaluating co alternatives to that contract they have before them. The Federal Reserve System recently adopted a series of rule changes to improve disclosure requirements for a range of consumer financial products. Many of these changes were based on the results of consumer testing, and this is a, a typical private sector practice when designing commuter, uh, consumer uh, communications. The McGraw Hill people undoubtedly do this a lot, but surprisingly it's, some, it's relatively new to the field of designing regulatory disclosure requirements. Now one common lesson of that testing is that paradoxically enough, disclosure requirements may be most beneficial if less information rather than more is disclosed. And home mortgage disclosures are a great case in point, uh, should be obvious to all of us. After all, the current housing boom and decline uh, that, that followed that occurred in an era when lenders were required to disclose a huge amount of information. An overwhelming stack of documents greets you at the closing of a home mortgage uh, transaction. Now it's arguable that if only the most significant items of those, uh, the, or significant parts of the terms of those mortgages had been disclosed, or at least highlighted in an intuitive and understandable way, consumers would have been able to much more easily evaluate their options and understand what they're getting into. Well-designed disclosure requirements, therefore, are likely to improve the functioning of markets rather than hindering them, and I, I think through that improve consumer welfare. But regulations that would limit consumers' ability to access financial products, even those products that may appear detrimental to some consumers at first blush, such as the high interest rate loan in the example I cited before, may harm the very people they were intended to protect. In addition, it's quite possible that in the longer run, firms will develop new financial products that bypass existing regulations and constraints and that households will be confronted anyway with decisions regarding those products before the regulatory structure has time to catch up and ban them. So I'd prefer to see more emphasis on giving people information they need to make clear, uh, information they need in a clear and understandable format targeted uh, to help them avoid making serious errors. I'd rather see clear an emphasis on clear information than on restricting access to financial products. So what does all this mean for financial education? You may recall the movie Wall Street uh, a couple of decades ago with Michael Douglas as the ruthless Gordon Gecko, and uh, the ever-lovable Charlie Sheen as the naive but ambitious young Bud Fox. Uh, in that movie, there's a scene in which uh, Fox is about to walk into Gordon Gecko's office for the first time, and he says to himself, life comes down to a few moments. This is one of them. I'm not going to advocate that we show Wall Street in financial education classes. Uh, 
exactly the opposite, in fact. But I think there's a lot of truth in that quote. That's the theme for the next part of my talk. In the sense that I think a few key decisions in a person's lifetime have a tremendous effect on how the rest of their life unfolds. In those cases, it's important that we make the correct choice. And perhaps more importantly, it's important to avoid a really bad choice. The same is true of personal financial decisions as well as I, I believe. A lot rides on a few key financial decisions. And here's what I think they are. I think there's three of them. Whether or not to pursue higher education, whether or not to purchase a house, and if so, related decision, uh, how to finance it, that is what means to use to buy the house. And third, how best to save for retirement. These three decisions, I think, stand heads and shoulders above the range of other financial decisions a typical person will make in their house in their lifetime. I believe financial education should focus on those key decisions, ones that have large and potentially long-lasting effects on people's lives. Consider education. Wage inequality has been growing in the United States since the late 1970s. And while there are many potential causes of this trend, the one that I believe is contributing most uh, significantly is skill-biased technical change. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, that means that technological progress over the last several decades has increased the productivity of skilled workers more rapidly than it has increased the productivity of unskilled workers. So skilled workers are becoming relatively more productive compared to unskilled workers, and as a result, the financial returns to accumulating skills have grown significantly. Often, though not always, but often those skills are obtained through higher education. But investments in human capital can prove even more useful if they're made at a relatively early age, giving people the opportunity to recoup their investment throughout the majority of their working lives. Such training tends to build on itself because acquiring skills earlier in life makes it easier, less costly, uh, to acquire additional skills late, later in life. The evidence is clear, I think, that over time, higher education has become a more significant determinant of lifetime earnings, and this suggests that it's particularly important for us to be sure that high school students fully understand these dynamics as they consider which path to take following their graduation, or even whether to graduate or not. I've already talked a bit about home purchases and the importance of properly evaluating the suitability of one's mortgage. But I think it's also important to note that ownership itself is not a wise choice for everybody. For example, for those who value mobility and are apt to move relatively frequently to pursue better job opportunities, the search and transactions costs of purchasing a house and selling it again can be prohibitively large. Critically, purchasing a home usually means sinking a considerable amount of a household savings into a single undiversified asset that is often costly to trade. This move may be particularly risky for households with a highly variable income stream, and so need a buffer stock of liquid asset holdings to get them through, or with a low level of savings, obviously puts them in a similarly vulnerable situation. And that's true of many low-income households. When one considers such factors, I think it becomes clear that renting does not necessarily mean throwing your money away, as a common uh, su suggestion would have it. It's simply another way to consume housing stock, one that's appropriate for some households, just as buying is for others. Given the 
financial risks associated with home ownership, as highlighted, I might add, by this decade's housing boom and bust, it should be clear that educating people about home ownership decision is particularly important. Planning for retirement also involves a hard set of choices as well, and if not done carefully, it can lead to very painful results. In the aftermath of this recession, which has seen many workers postponing their impending retirements, the importance of accounting for a range of risks uh, that are plausible should be clear. Given the differences in how people wish to live in retirement, and that is whether they want to spend more or less or about the same amount as they spent while they were during their working years, it's hard to say in the abstract just what an optimal retirement plan is for any one person. You need to leave that up to them. But I think everyone would benefit from understanding that there's generally a good reason to shift your retirement portfolio from risky assets to less risky assets as you grow older and your retirement date approaches. And this understanding might have helped prevent some of the considerable losses, untimely losses in retirement funds that some consumers approaching retirement years have unfortunately experienced in the last year or two with the decline in equity markets. These three examples I've given all involve overtly financial decisions, uh, specifically those that will have a significant impact on nearly every household's financial well-being. But at their core, they're about fundamental economic principles. As such, I think we should view financial education and economic education as inherently, intimately intertwined. How, for instance, uh, does one adequately consider home buying versus renting without understanding the concept of opportunity cost? Or similarly, how would you understand uh, why there's now a wage premium and why that wage premium is growing in the United States without, uh, uh, without um, understanding comparative advantage or the broad characteristics of recent economic growth trends? This isn't to say that financial education is only about economic education, um, or that economic education is only about financial education, but it, financial education is an important component of economic education um, and importantly related. Conversely, I might add that it's hard to imagine teaching about the recent financial crisis without coming across the opportunity to discuss personal financial decisions like financing a home or saving for retirement. And more generally, in my view, it's hard to teach economics at all without teaching about how to make decisions, including financial decisions that have an economic effect. As for how to implement such programs or such an agenda, my reading of the literature suggests that there are still many open questions, so I'm not going to uh, pontificate to, uh, to you on that. There are ongoing efforts within the Federal Reserve System to measure how some of the Federal Reserve's financial education programs have fared and, and which have been most successful in achieving their intended outcomes. And I hope those results will be useful uh, to the people in this room as you continue your good work to help people achieve their financial goals and to help people avoid mistakes that could prove financially crippling. Thank you once again for this opportunity to share my thoughts with you. I wish you the best of your uh, the best of luck in your work for an exceptionally good cause. Thank you.